topic for the evening talk is samsara and emptiness. In the old religious texts, there is quite some frequency of reference to the concept samsara. And this uh, concept doesn't uh, refer to a fashionable perfume, which <laughs> I see in the advertisements of airline companies. Though it might, of course. Um, but um, refers to a relationship to life, and a relationship to life which is frequently assumed. And it means this wandering on from one thing to another, the moving on from one thing to another. And through our relationship to life, through the interpretations that we share of past, present and future, we get this feeling at times and this sense and conclusion that our life is one of wandering on from one thing to another and therefore at times purposeless and at times more a moving on from one thing to another which implies in it that there is a sense of purpose. And our experiences and our relationship to life is such that we confirm with each other these two forms of interpretation of what existence actually is. And at times, in our reading, in our discussions, in the way we conceive of existence, we interpret perhaps in another way. And we can philosophize immensely about the nature of life, the way that existence is, but from the experiential standpoint, we regard it as going from one thing to another. We may translate this into the language of evolution, the language of becoming, and it seems that when we experience in this moving on from one thing to another, or wandering on from one thing to another, there seems to be very little interruption in that. We look at our physical life, and say, I began this life as small as a child, I've moved on to becoming aging, to becoming an adult, I move into the senior years of my life, and I've gone from this to that. I look at my feeling life, I see they change, they are this, then they become that, and there's that again, that moving on. I see with my thoughts, with my activities, the same sequence. So it would appear that life, and particularly from the human standpoint, is this samsara. This is the nature of life, this move, moving on. And the experience, which goes with the connotation of samsara, something unsatisfactory. It's as though we are helpless in the face of circumstances. We like to pride ourselves that we have some control over our life, 
and yet we're constantly being disturbed in numerous ways which reveal to us how brief our moments of control are. We are affected by the ecosystem itself, by global conditions, by political decisions, by economic circumstances, by social values, cultural influences, by the influences of the past, both near and far, by the state of our genes, by the uh, ways of interpreting existence. And we see these countless dependently arising conditions forming us into our idea of who we are. And sometimes we ask ourselves, in all of this, how much choice do I really have? Am I just in this cycle of becoming, in this movement of becoming, and that the very ideas of choices, in fact, is not separate from it, but is part of the, the wheel itself. When we sometimes look carefully, a little bit more carefully, at this, because the concept of becoming, the concept of samsara, the moving on, can seem quite large and all-embracing. So then we ask ourselves, what does that mean in simple day-to-day -day terms? And the simple day-to-day -day terms is our interest and our involvement to break down samsara into there is desire, there are the actions which follow on from the desire or desires, and there is the results which I experience. In the results which I experience, in the effects of what I do or what happens to me, comes new interests, new desires, or perpetuation of the old, and then I start again. And I find myself in a start-stop existence. And I stop for a while, things happen to me, I experience the effect of the old, it influences my perceptions right in the middle of the effect, and then I move on. Then something occurs, I experience a result, and I move on again. You see, this, again, the sequence of the desire, action, and result continues. In that, the whole movement that goes on with us is at times pleasurable, at times painful, and at times somewhere in between, a kind of mess of both. Is it any wonder in this samsaric movement, in this cycle, that we experience in different ways intimations of how tired we are of it. When the work, example, feels like a day-to-day -day grudgery, and we feel caught in that, what we're saying in spiritual terms is, I'm tired of this go-around, I'm tired of this samsara. When we experience 
tiredness with studies and struggling and working hard to achieve some aim, some fruition. We're saying in spiritual terms, I'm tired of being tied to this study program, to this pursuit of examination results. How can I get out of it? <coughs> so, in different ways, there is the feeling of being tied into, there is the awareness of it, and there is the wish, and sometimes the very deep wish to break free from it. This wish to break free from it, of course, can take many forms. One of the forms that it takes is we do something else, not realizing what we break out of, that we break into something fresh and we simply start the samsara movement all over again. And what's new becomes the old. I stop my studies, I go traveling. I stop my relationship, I move into another place, I stop this, I stop that. And it seems that after a period of time, the irritation or the itch <coughs> or the dissatisfaction sparks again. Spiritual teachings say, this sequence, this samsara, <coughs> whether purposeless, that is just wandering on, drifting on from one to another, <coughs> or purposeful, human being has the wonderful capacity Realize it is finished. And there's no more starting up. No more. It's gone. <coughs> I think probably the Buddha was probably in his own way, that is, prior to his realization, acutely aware of the predicament that he found himself in. And that his story, which has been repeated, of course, through generations of Dharma teachers, in a way is symbolic of our own story. And his story was basically, it would appear, one in which he was born into a particular society, and that particular society, including his parents, including the social realities in which he moved, had a view of him that he ought to fulfill certain obligations connected with the wishes of his family and the wishes of the social values and structure. And for him, that uh, meant uh, leadership, uh, responsibility, and seemingly the uh, heir the chieftain, the king of a particular small principality in the north of India. And he said to himself, on these expectations which had been placed upon him, that it wasn't something that he was committed to and wanted to stay with. He didn't want his life to be defined in that way. Out of that came a breaking away from that 
only to realize, as he pointed out, that just the breaking away from didn't fundamentally change anything. He simply went from one role, husband, uh, prince, parent, apparently of about a, a week before he split, into another role <laughs> of the wandering ascetic, the searcher, the seeker, the one who is pursuing the truth, and the samsara took, as it were, moved from a social to a spiritual form, but it was still the wandering on from one thing to another. Motives may be different, intentions may be different, one might possibly consider it as a more noble activity, but basically no different, essentially, because it was still role, identity, and pursuit of a result. In his case, truth, enlightenment, awakening, whatever. We too can be in this position that sometimes the spiritual life, as people regularly report, it doesn't seem to make life any easier, that sometimes it seems to be more trouble than it's worth, because one has the view that once one starts to sense through awareness something a little different, it can make what one does and the way what, that one lives more dissatisfying. And it's not unusual for people to say, to say to me, I wish I'd never heard of spirituality. I wish I'd never sat down and crossed my legs. I wish I never knew that I had a breath or even a nose on the front of my face. <laughs> because what it has actually done for me is put me between the devil and the deep blue. Meaning that I was going along all right with my life before, having my ups and downs and just doing my day-to-day -day life and my struggles, my pleasures and my pains. And then, for some unfortunate reason, which I can't explain to myself, I started questioning my ordinary, conventional, habitual life, started to ask questions, ended up on Unpleasant Street in Barry. <laughs> And the fruits of all this is that I'm more dissatisfied with my way of living than I was. I have no idea what spirituality is. I've just found my breath on the last day. <laughs> and I feel wedged between the two. This is between the devil and the deep blue. And that voice, that thought that arises, uh, is not an unusual one. And therefore, sometimes spiritual awarenesses, the sensitivities and the receptivities to something other, actually can carry its own backlash. And the backlash of it is, it can be the breeding ground for more dissatisfaction with one's existence and the existence that is around one than one knew before. And that is the risk. The Buddha 
think, acutely aware, as I mentioned, of, of this and has explored this very profoundly, very, 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 very deeply. What he said, following his realization and his enlightenment, that there is what might be referred, what he referred to as the word is sika, sika, it's the threefold sika. Sika means, in English, the way it is usually translated is training. But it's more than training, it's a, it's a, a discipline, it's a way of being in the world, in which the way of being in the world comes first and foremost. So, we might say that in the conventional samsaric view of life, it's as though we are ensnared in desire, hyphenated action, hyphenated result. This, as it were, becomes our threefold mode of living. Constantly wandering through this threefold mode of living and thinking that's what it's all about, it's perfectly obvious, it, that's how it is for me, that's how, that's all that anybody ever talks about, is their desires, their actions, and their results. So it's as though the Buddha has come in and said, upon his realization, we don't actually have to think, believe, and place such a value in this way. And it's as though what is being suggested and offered and endorsed in the realization is another threefold way of being in this world, which is called this threefold sikha, this training, this discipline, which essentially comprises of the ethical foundations of existence, it essentially comprises of awarenesses of life and living with wisdom. And this is to be explored, to be brought into life, and what it's brought into life at the expense of the addiction and the identification with desire, action, result, cycle. Ethical, aware ethical awarenesses, ethics, deep values for life which bring, give integrity to a human being, awarenesses of life, both the meditative awarenesses and the awarenesses of one's way of being in the world and what all that goes with it, and the wisdom which comes from this. And we start as to make a, a shift of consciousness, say this is what actually matters. Not my involvement, my identification with the cycle, the sequence of desire, action and result. Something else matters more than that um, rolling on from one thing to another expressed as self. In that, that means that that threefold discipline, that threefold training, is such that it's to be incorporated and it's to be brought into the situations where normally we view from desire, action and result perspective. And to, and to apply the ethics, to apply a full-on awareness, meditative awarenesses, and to, and to ask and find out what the wisdom is in being with and dealing with these situations as 
the spiritual training to negate the power of identification and belief in this desire-action-result sequence, in this samsaric existence. We would still say that in being engaged in this training, in the discipline of this, that it is still a movement, that it still has its ups and downs that go with it. It is still a refined form of becoming. It still is such that it, at times it seems to accentuate and bring out of us the desire process, make it even more abundantly clear. Are we willing, through the light of awareness, to let that happen? To give an example, a fairly graphic illustration here of what I mean, sometimes we go into these uh, rather lovely old churches, and on the nave, on the altar, above the altar, the architects, in planning and designing such buildings, allowed for glass to be peering from the roof of the church to go right down to the altar floor. <coughs> and when one looks at that, in the church there will be this very clear, bright stream of light touching to the floor. In a way, that is like the light of awareness in uh, the meditative spiritual discipline. But what that light of awareness is, not only highlight and bring out the altar or the cross on the altar, but equally it reveals the dust. <laughs> if one wants to bring light into this world, that light, as they say, that awareness is choiceless. It brings out the beauty and the appreciation and the subtleties of life, but it will make the dust unbelievably clear. Not surprisingly, at times, we think and we say to ourselves and to each other, I wish I'd never heard of awareness. Because it's so indiscriminate. It doesn't know discernment. The power of ego, of self, doesn't have much choice. It reveals what it reveals, like it or not. That is awareness, it's quite non-self, non-personal. And what we notice, that the more self tries to, is to focus on what I like and what I approve of, it keeps revealing what I don't like. The more I taste of something which I like and I taste it again and again and again and again, the closer and the quicker I'll get to not liking. Try it with ice cream sometime. <laughs> Eat enough, you can't stand another bite. You're sick the taste of it. The liking converts itself to disliking whether we like it or not. So I say the beam of light of awareness reveals 
all. And that's the purpose of it. It is, it is a non-self-awareness. It is a non-centered uh, awareness. So then we look, as I say, there is the process of threefold discipline, threefold training, threefold interconnection. Then we ask ourselves, if wisdom is the substitution for effect, substitution for result, what is that wisdom? If my everyday mind, my ordinary mind, is doing things with the doer to achieve a result, and the doer is tied to results, is tied to effects for its peace, for its contentment, for its state, what is, in the threefold training, what is the wisdom that dissolves effect? What is the wisdom in life which frees a person from the imprisonment of cause and effect? And sometimes we are willing or are able, or are forced, as here, to stop and be very, very still. To be so still that what is apparent to us is that we're not doing anything. That we're actually not, in the silence of things, not doing anything. And what we notice with ourselves is that the doer arises and the doer arises as something substantial. It takes the form of the desirer. It takes the form of the doer. And it takes the form of the one who receives the results of what he or she does. So for samsara to have substance, for you and I to be wandering on from one thing to another, the doer has to be the thread, the link, between desire, action and result. And the desire manifests moves to the action, which is the doer, again, and then comes the fruition of it. And whatever the fruition is, sets up the doer in a fresh way to determine what comes the next desire form. So what is the wisdom that ends this samsara? that ends this conventional agreement about what life is all about. It doesn't matter, as the Buddha realized. It doesn't matter how many people subscribe to this. It doesn't matter how much this is believed in as being what life is actually all about. It doesn't matter the terms of numbers or social or environmental 
political economic values that go along to keep this system of desiring the acting and resulting, effecting going, if we stop and we actually question that conglomeration and we see that the desire, so the doer is the link-up in this cycle, the doer must go. If the doer goes, the whole samsara goes with it once and for all. Because the doer is necessary to perpetuate the myth, to perpetuate the belief in one of those three forms. Where? What is the end of the doer? What is the wisdom in which the doer is finished? Therefore the desirer is finished, the doer is finished, and the result is finished with it. And one knows it has no truth. One has realized there is no truth in it. And all the convention of life, all the agreeable interpretations of life have lost all meaning. It's gone. What is that wisdom? What is that wisdom that generations of the Buddha, before the Buddha, after the Buddha, long after you and I have breathed our last on this extraordinary earth, the same teaching will be going out. What is the wisdom that finishes samsara, finishes the doer? And it doesn't leave a human being passive. It doesn't leave a human being indifferent to the world, or withdrawn, or, as it were, outwardly uninvolved. So we want to stop and we look, and we are still, and we're interested in this movement. We know that we talk about it, we think about it, we reflect about it, we are involved in it. And yet, in our silence, in the emptiness of the silence, it's as if it is just occurring And that just occurring, taking place, is really not the significant thing. That the activities of the doer really is not of any matter. And so the way that it appears things are unfolding, the way past, present and future, in the detail of it, reveals itself, is not the truth of life. The detail is not the truth of life. The incident of the desirer or the doer of the result is not the truth of life.
and we can't express what it is. And we can't articulate it. We're rather obliged to speak of emptiness, not in a negative way, not in a harsh or indifferent way, but simply we don't know what to say. And therefore, we are left with a kind of wonder, a kind of mystical sense. And what we do know, and what we can say with confidence, and with trust and realization, that this samsara has no meaning. Doesn't mean anything. And that the uh, infatuation with it has gone. And, as it were, the communication of the realization of the emptiness of this samsara is that the responses inside are joyful and profound friendship to life and a way of being in the world where the way of being in the world, as it were, reflects or reveals ethical values, meditative awarenesses, and wisdom. And that in a remarkable and mysterious way, there's a realization that the threefold discipline, ethical training, awareness, and wisdom is not only the path, but also it manifests as the fruit. It's not only the doing, it's also the effect. It's also the realization. And the desire, action, result has collapsed into emptiness. It's the stuff of dreams. So I say, realization and awareness is really born of the same nature. We sometimes say, if I am aware, then I'll become realized. If I am aware, I'll gain enlightenment. If I am aware, I'll see the cessation of suffering. Look more carefully into the awareness, with its support of ethical considerations, with the wisdom which allows awareness to be. Sense it more carefully. And then when the Buddha says, when teachers say 
whatever the language. Emptiness is realizable, enlightenment is close at hand. When the teachers say the kingdom of God is at hand, when, when it is said the truth is at hand, emptiness is immediate. It's not something vague and abstract and um, off-center. It's immediate. May all beings see into the nature of things. May all beings be touched with life. May all beings abide with wisdom. So let's have two or three minutes quiet period, please. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.